0: book of 1 John and chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2. That's going to be towards the end of your Bible, after 2 Peter, but before the book of 2 John. So if you've come to 2 John, you've gone too far. The book of 1 John and chapter number 2. A couple of weeks ago, about a month ago now, I had to change the spark plugs in my car. And I am, I'm handy enough to do tasks like that, but i 'm really glad I know Keith Sexton. you know what i 'm saying like just, just to have a safety net, but um, I, I, I was I had to change the plugs in my car and i 've done it in that car before, and it 's as easy as you could, you could possibly do it. You could do it in your sleep in that car but so I thought you know the kids wanted to come and help they wanted to help daddy, and I thought this is going to be a great learning experience for the kids because it's an essential part of childhood for a child to Hold the flashlight while dad's under the hood. And so I'm, I'm getting everything together, get all my tools together, pop the hood, take the engine cover off, pull the wires. And, and the kids are, are starting to rummage through my tools. And they, they want to help, you know. And so Scylla grabs a long flathead screwdriver and starts running towards the tire. Daddy, let me fix the tire. No, baby, don't fix the tire. Asa grabs a hammer. Daddy, let me fix the light. No, don't fix the light. But while I'm trying to manage them, I get, I get the first plug out, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to teach them about how you know a car motor works because they're going to need to know this one day. So I'm trying to teach them. So, all right, y'all look right here. What you've got here is an internal combustion engine, and this spark plug is going to make a spark, and it's going to light this fire, and you know it went over about like you thought it did. But every now and then, you do have to, you do have to pop the hood, and you have to get your hands greasy to really understand how something works. And that's what we're going to do tonight from First John chapter number 2. We are going to pop the hood on God's forgiveness of us, His people in Christ, to understand how that works. Because the truth about all of us is that no matter how long we've been following the Lord, we still sin. And we still need forgiveness of that sin. And because we may not understand exactly how that forgiveness works, we may not really be sure that God does forgive us when we sin. In fact, that's the question that I want to answer tonight was, how do we know, how do we know, not hope or not think, but how do we know that God forgives us when we sin? Because we all sin. We all do things that we shouldn't do. We all leave undone things that we ought to have done. We all have memories in our past, some of them very, very distant, that still kind of come back on us. We have skeletons in our closet, but those skeletons don't stay there, do they? We have things maybe in our recent past, maybe this week, maybe even today, things that are bothering you, that you're struggling to work through. How do you know that God forgives you? Let's read this text of Scripture today. 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Word says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. The little epistle of 1 John is a book that is all about confidence. In 1 John chapter number 1 and verse number 4, John writes and says... I'm giving you these things so that your joy may be complete or that your joy may be full. He says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 13, I'm writing these things to you that believe that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a book about confidence. Did you know that God wants His people to be confident? Not confident in ourselves. Not confident in our abilities, not even confident in our own spirituality as such, but God wants us to be confident in our relationship with Him. The way that children, in a healthy relationship with their parents, are confident of their parents' love for them. God, our Father, wants us to be confident of His love for us. The way that spouses in a healthy relationship are confident of the stability of that relationship. God wants us to be confident of the stability of our relationship between the Lord Jesus. Jesus wants us to be so confident in our relationship with Him that the joy He gives us is bubbling over, bubbling over into our lives to produce a kind of happy and glad obedience that is lived out in our lives together. As we obey God together, as we worship together, as we love one another. But, What happens to that confidence when we sin? What happens to that confidence when the people of God fall back into the sins that Jesus has saved them from? What happens when a believer sins? What happens when we confess and what happens when we repent? How can we know that God actually forgives us? That is not a small question. In fact, this is a big, big question that has been a big, big problem for Christians for centuries. For instance, in the early centuries of the Christian church, oftentimes people would wait until right before they died, when they knew they were dying, to be baptized. Because they typically believed that maybe baptism imparted some kind of special grace. And if you said some cuss word right there at the end, But all that grace will be gone, and then you wouldn't get to go to heaven. So what do you do? You wait until the doctor says, this is it. It It's the last few minutes. Then you have somebody baptize you, and then you're all clear. Because what happens if a Christian sins after they become a Christian? They were confused, but maybe were confused. There are some Christians that would believe, or at least they would tell you they believe, that if a believer sins after they become a believer, then they will lose their salvation. Now, what you'll find typically if you ask people is you'll find that they believe that other people can lose their salvation. You're not going to find many of them that say, yeah, I used to be saved in 1974. I yelled at my wife too much. And well, then what are you going to do? You're not going to find that. But they're confused. And maybe you're confused. What happens to a Christian after they sin, even though they are a believer? Do you realize that this question is the whole reason for the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory? It's the whole reason for it. They're confused, but maybe we are confused. And so John wants to write to clear up that confusion and give us, as the people of God, the gift of confidence. Now before we look at how John answers this question, what I want to tell you is, first of all, that part of our confusion comes from our understanding of what sin is. Now John is writing about what happens when believers sin. And it's important for us that we have the Bible's definition of sin sin. Here's why. Because you are a sinner. So you think about sin the way a sinner thinks about sin. So that means that your sin-detecting radar, it's all jacked up. It's all wrong, all right? And so there are some things that you do that are not wrong that you feel bad for, and you feel guilty over, even though they are not sinful. But there are also a whole bunch of things that you do that are sinful that you never even notice. Why? Because your heart is sinful and your heart is screwed up. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Who could possibly know them? In fact, we are so sinful that often the good things that we do are tainted by sinful motives. All of our righteousness, not our sin, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse number 6. But the opposite is also true. There are some things that we do that are not sinful that do bother us, that do disturb us. For instance, here's an example from my life. I was raised and taught to believe that it was always a sin to drink alcohol for any reason at any time, unless you had a bad enough cold. But otherwise, otherwise, it was always a sin to drink alcohol. Now, I was also raised to believe that you should abstain from any appearance of evil, which means, the way they interpreted it, that means that if you ever do anything, that anybody anywhere might think is a sin, then you are sinning. And so because I grew up believing that and hearing that, I still get a little bothered if I take a shortcut through the beer aisle to get to the hamburger meat at the grocery store. I'm telling you, before the Lord, because there's something from my childhood that comes back and says, somebody's going to see you, and you're going to lose your testimony, and then somebody that you could have led to the Lord is going to die and go to hell because here you are taking a shortcut to the ground beef that's on sale at Win dixie Folks, it is not a sin. It is not a sin to walk through the beer aisle. What that is a sign of is not sin. That is a sign of a conscience that was formed poorly by people who did not handle the Word of God carefully. And I say that to you because some of you have been taught growing up by people who did not handle the Word of God carefully or maybe didn't handle the Word of God at all. They just invented a bunch of junk that they said you shouldn't do. And so that has warped your conscience and warped your way of thinking so that you judge yourself for things that are not mentioned in His Word. That's why we have to be careful as preachers, as believers, as teachers, Sunday school teachers or children's workers, whatever. We have to be careful to make sure that we never bind anybody's conscience by anything other than what God clearly and explicitly says in His Word. Otherwise, people get screwed up at the grocery store like I do. Now, with that being said, what happens when we actually do sin? What do we do when we sin? How can we have confidence that God forgives us when we sin? This is what the Apostle John wants to tell us. And what he says is that we can have confidence when we sin that God forgives us. We can have confidence that God forgives us because the Savior who died for us lives for us and lives in us. We can have confidence that God forgives us when we sin because the Savior who died for us lives for us and lives In us. So that means that when I am trying to figure out, does God really forgive me? That first of all, I need to and I can look to my Lord and find forgiveness. I can look to my Lord. And what John does in this passage of scripture is he points our eyes towards Jesus, particularly in verse number one and verse number two. And he says, Look to Jesus, who is the ground of your forgiveness before God. And y'all, this is so vital. Because most of the time when we struggle with doubt or when we wonder if God can really forgive us, the reason is because we've gotten our eyes off of Jesus and onto something else. Either we've got our eyes on our sin, and our sin seems so egregious, our sin seems so big, our sin seems so incredibly devastating, we think surely God could never forgive that, and we see our sin, but we don't see grace. Or we get confused about why God forgives us, the basis of forgiveness. And we get our eyes on the good things that we think we're doing. And we wonder, is it really good enough? And we doubt God's capacity to forgive because we get our eyes off of Jesus. So John says here, lift up your head to Jesus and look to him as your advocate who stands for you. See what he says there? He says, if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, the word advocate is a word that comes into Scripture from the courtroom. This is a legal term. And it's not a lawyer, not really, but it is somebody who helps an individual in court. Somebody who represents another in court. Somebody who argues on behalf of another in court. And even though it's not really a lawyer, the closest thing that we have in our court system is basically a defense attorney. Now, if you've ever had any issues where you've had to go to court and have an attorney, and I'm not here to judge you. Um, I've had some appearances myself for different reasons. But you know that your success in that case, in large part, is going to come down to how effective and usually how expensive your defense attorney is. So if you can hire a defense attorney, one of those guys you know that the rich and famous basketball players can hire that charges $10,000 an hour, you're probably going to be all right. You might get some community service, have to go scrub some graffiti at the park, but it's okay. But if you get a public defender, and that joker pulls up to court with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich hanging out of his briefcase, you're going to jail. Take the plea bargain, right? Because in that moment, as the defendant, some of y'all never been to court, I can tell, but in that moment, as the defendant, your future is wrapped up in the one who represents you. Now, y'all see what John says, right? He says, as a child of God, your future is wrapped up in the one who represents you. Let me say that again to make sure you got it. As a child of God, your future is wrapped up in the one who represents you. And what John wants sinning believers to see, what he wants us to feel and what he wants us to know, when we fail and when we blow it, he wants us to understand that in the presence of God tonight, right now, it is not my sin that has God's attention. It is my Savior that has God's attention. It's not my failures that have His attention. It is His faithfulness. It's not the mistakes that I make that have God's attention, but rather Jesus' own perfection, His righteousness, and the wounds He received at Calvary. Those things are more present in the presence of God than my sin. I have an advocate with the Father. And this is such an incredible idea from John. Uh, that, okay, so John is writing in 1 John, and one of the things that he's concerned about, you can see it particularly in 1 John 1, verse 1, he's worried about this early kind of false Christian movement that says Jesus really didn't come in a physical body. That Jesus was God, but he wasn't a man. That he was some kind of Superman ghost type creature. But John says in John 1, we saw him, we heard him, We handled him. John said, listen, I was there when they crucified him. I saw his body die. I was there after he rose again. I saw his body break bread on the other side of the grave. John would say, I leaned over on his bosom at the Last Supper. John said, don't tell me he don't have a body. Say, Brother Jesse, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of things, but here's what matters for you tonight. Your advocate with the Father is present before God. The perfect man with a resurrected body. Is there in his presence right now. And what is he doing? He's praying for you. He's representing you. He's pleading for you. And the incredible thing about it is from the book of Hebrews, chapter number eight and verse number one, says that our advocate, our ascended Savior, is seated. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, why is my advocate? Why is my attorney? Why is the one pleading my case? Seated. Well, I don't know everything about lawyering. All right? Don't take legal advice from me. Other than don't use the public defender unless you have to. That's all I'll give you. And don't don't even say anything without a lawyer present. I'll give you that one too. Now, anyway, that was just free. That's just helpful counsel. All right, now. I don't know anything about actual practice of law. And I don't know how it worked in the first century. But I have seen a few law movies. And I have read a few books by John Grisham. And I do know enough to know that when that defense attorney defends his client in court, he's going to call witnesses and he's going to cross-examine witnesses. He's going to present evidence and he's going to try and undermine evidence. He's going to talk to the judge, your honor, I object to this. Your Honor, this other thing. Your Honor, I want to file this motion. I want to do this, whatever, whatever. He's going to talk to the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when this trial's over, you're going to see that my defendant is not guilty on and on and on and on. And when he's presented all the evidence, when he has argued his case, and when he has said everything he needs to say to the judge, and when he believes that he has made a convincing argument, what does he do? He says, Your Honor, the defense rests. And he sits down. And tonight, the reason that the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, number one is because He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords, but number two is because He has rested His defense of us, because He has made the perfect argument on our behalf, and there's nothing more that can be said other than what He has said in His death. So Jesus, our advocate, is seated for us now, but He also stood in for us at the cross. Our advocate in 1 John chapter 2, John says, is also the propitiation, in verse 2, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I want to zero in on that word propitiation for a minute. I know it's almost 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night. I know you worked hard all day today. And I know that this is a five-syllable word. It's a lot to wrap your tongue around, and it's a lot to wrap your mind around. But the word linebacker has three syllables, all right? We can get this. We're already almost there. This is an important word. It's a very, very rare word in the Bible. It only appears a handful of times, and this is one of them. What is propitiation? It's one of the most important words in all the Bible. What, What is propitiation? The word propitiation harkens back to both the Old Testament sacrificial system and in certain ways to pagan sacrificial ideas and concepts. And so this word is a religious word where the word advocate is a legal word, the word propitiation is and was a religious word, the word propitiation. Here used in 1 John chapter number 2 is used to translate one of the more common words In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kippur. The Hebrew word kippur means to atone, or it means to cover. In fact, just a few weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, or maybe even last week, um, was the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which means in Hebrew, Day of Atonement. And that is the highest and holiest day in the Jewish calendar. Because it's their belief, and it was their belief, that that was the day that God covered over their sins, through the atoning sin offering. But there were two offerings that were made on the day of atonement as a propitiation. The first was a scapegoat. and You know they would bring this goat before the high priest. And the high priest would, on behalf of the people, he would confess the sins of the people for the year, lay his hands on that goat, symbolically transferring the guilt and the sins of the people onto that goat. And then they would pick a man, a strong, capable man that could handle a goat. I don't know what kind of goat it was, but somebody fears to handle this goat. And he would lead that goat, with all the sins on it, away from the camp, away from the people, far enough out in the wilderness so that it would never come back. That's what the law commanded. Now, it wasn't long before the Jewish people said, we're not going to take any chance on it coming back, so they just take it and push it off a cliff. But it was a symbolic way of saying that our God has removed our sins from us. Can I tell you, that's what the Bible says. That our God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That our God has cast our sin into the sea of His forgetfulness. Now, I know that our God can't ever forget anything. But I do know he's chosen not to remember my sins. And as somebody said, he threw our sins into the sea of his forgetfulness and put up a no fishing sign. He's never going to dig them up again. But the other offering that they would make was the sin offering. And they would again lay their hands on that sin offering. And the high priest would sacrifice that animal take the blood from that goat, go into the holy of holies, the very holiest place, they believed, where the presence of God touched this world. And on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, the kipperets, the same word, he would offer a propitiation, offer a sacrifice, offer blood. And the idea was that God, who was angry at sin, would be appeased with that sacrifice. He would be propitiated with that sacrifice. And so that God who was angry would no longer be angry but would look upon his people with favor. The Gentiles in their pagan worship, they had much the same idea. They would use this word propitiation to talk about sacrifices they made to their gods. If you are a merchant and you're getting ready to take a, a load of cargo across the Mediterranean, before you set sail, you want to pray for favorable winds and good seas. And so you make a sacrifice to Lord Poseidon. And Poseidon is going to see your passion and your zeal and your sacrifice, and he's going to be favorably favorably disposed to give you your request. That was an idea of propitiation. What John says here in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is our propitiation, that Jesus is the one who has removed the wrath of God against us and has turned the smile of God on us. That's John's idea. What John is getting at here in this passage of Scripture is that the Savior who died for us as our propitiation lives for us as our advocate, and He has made a perfect end and a perfect offering for our sin. Now, why is this important for us? Well, this is important for us if we want our sins to be forgiven, yes, absolutely. But it's also important for us if we want to live in confidence that our sins are forgiven. Because there are a number of issues that that we have in feeling feeling forgiven, not the least of which is that we think we have to feel forgiven to be forgiven, which is not true. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that if I confess my sins, He's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. John says there that the Lord is faithful and just, that is, He's right to forgive me my sins. Why is He right to do it? Because He's punished my sin at the cross. Another error that we have is, and I I blame Southern Gospel for this, Um, not completely but mostly, we have this idea that God owed us justice, which He did, and that God gave us mercy, which He did. But somehow we've lost the idea that in giving us mercy, God satisfied His justice. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Another time the word propitiation occurs. He says that God is both just and the justifier of them that are forgiven. Understand me today. When God forgives our sins, when he removes it, he doesn't just make it disappear. He doesn't just make it go away. He does not just look at our sins and say, you know, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. I'm God. I forgive. It's kind of what I do. No, God righteously punishes our sin at the cross. My sin is not just gone. My sin is gone because God obliterated it. Burned out His wrath against it in Jesus. And so what can happen is this, and this is really, really important. What can happen is this. In churches like ours, we can so emphasize and overemphasize our response to the good news of the gospel. That we obscure the gospel itself. What I mean is this. We'll tell people, if you're a sinner you're going to hell. Amen, which is true. If you repent and believe in Jesus, you can be saved. Amen. Jesus died for you, rose again. You need to call out to him and he will save you. Romans 10, 13. Whoever called upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what we need you to do right now is we need to bow your head. We need you to lift up your hand. We need you to come to this altar, shake the preacher's hand, sign the card. We can baptize you and put you on the church roll. And in that, we start to think, well, maybe God forgives me because of what I do. God forgives me because I'm sincere. If you sincerely called upon the Lord, he heard you we think well God forgives me because I cried or because I felt or because I did. And so now that I've been saved, maybe I'm not doing enough now to undermine all the bad that I did before. When what John is reminding us that we are not forgiven because of what we have done. We are forgiven because of what Christ has done. And we need to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. That is the faith that saves. It's when we look to Jesus And we say, he is the propitiation. The reason God is not angry at me tonight is because of Christ. It's not because I prayed a prayer or responded to an altar call or signed a card. It's because of Jesus. He's the one that took everything that I deserved so I can have everything he deserved. And so I want you to be clear that we need to look away from ourselves and to Jesus. And another error that we have that seems to be coming up more and more it's people saying something like, I've asked God to forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. I want to encourage you to be very, very careful using that kind of language, because you'll never find it in Scripture. It's a totally unbiblical idea. What I think is that we say, I can't forgive myself, or, or, or the sins that we can't forgive ourselves of are really the sins that we thought we could never commit to begin with. It's when we've done something so catastrophic, so terrible, so disappointing that it's not that we've let God down. We don't have. But our problem internally is that we've let ourselves down. And we have a hard time getting past that because we're more worried about destroying our image of ourselves than we are violating the law of God. And so let me encourage you to think, not in terms of forgiving yourself, but in terms of believing that God has forgiven you in Christ. So you need to look to the Lord and find confidence of your forgiveness. But I also want to point out to you tonight, and I'm going to give you a very, very clear, and I hope explicit warning when I do this, that you can look to your life And find confidence that you have been forgiven. Look at what John says in verse number 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Okay? Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word of Him truly, the love of God is perfected. Do you see what John saying? Just the plain reading of the text says that if I see a pattern of obedience in my life... And that demonstrates that I know God. We're clear on that, right? Now, let me give you my warning. <clears throat> my warning is that the problem with our sin nature, the problem, the very heart of who we are, is that our sin turns us inward. It turns us away from God and in on ourselves. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it manifests itself is when we become convinced of how great we are. It manifests itself in pride. manifests itself in Extreme obsession with self-worth. But another way it manifests itself is when we feel how miserable we are and how terrible we are. And we always feel guilty and we always feel like we don't measure up. We always feel like we don't have anything to offer. At root, those are the same problem. The problem is an obsession with self. And the devil wants you to be thinking about yourself and he just wants to come along and pour gasoline on your fire. Tonight, what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to fall prey to that kind of sinful way of thinking about yourself, okay? I don't want you looking at yourself and being confused and thinking, well, look at how great I'm doing. Man, here I am in church on Wednesday night. I read three chapters in the Bible today and read my Open Windows book yesterday. Of course God forgives me. And I don't want you to start thinking that God forgives you because you're obedient. That's not what John says. And I also don't want you falling into the opposite trap thinking, well, look how terrible I am. Look how miserable I am. Look at how i failed. Look at what I've done that doesn't please God. God could never forgive somebody like me. And some of you are there right now, aren't you? In fact, you might have been in the other end yesterday, and now here you are thinking you're terrible. And Yesterday you were so great. What happened? That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying to you is that one of the clearest evidences that you have been forgiven of sin is that you are walking in freedom from the sins you've been forgiven of. That's John's point here. That's why he says there in verse number 5 that the love of God has been perfected when we keep His word. That God's love for us has reached maturity and completion. Our love for Him is reaching maturity and completion as we keep His word. As His love transforms us, as John will say later in 1 John 4, we love because He first loved us. As His love transforms us so that we are obedient. Not so that He will love us, but because He does love us. Now think about how this works in every other single relationship that you have. Except unless you were in the military, it probably didn't work with your drill instructor. But every other relationship you have. The more you receive love from somebody else, the more you grow in love to that person. And the more that individual loves you when you don't deserve to be loved, the more you grow in love for that individual, right? I think about Amy and I think about how much I loved her when we got married. But when we got married, she had never had to nurse me through a man cold. She never had to take me to the emergency room. She had never had to check on me in the middle of the night when I was sick. None of those kind of things. But the more she loved me through that kind of experience. The more she loved me when I lost a job. The more she loved me when I made a mess of things. The more she was patient with me when I didn't deserve it. The more my love for her grew. And That's what John is saying in this passage. That yes, as believers we do sin. But as we sin, what do we do? We confess it. And as we confess it, we find forgiveness. And the more we recognize God's love for us, even though we don't deserve it, the more we are transformed to be obedient as we fall more and more in love and become more and more committed to our Savior who loved us. And y'all, that's the way the Christian life works. And there are some of you that have been saved for 30 or 40 years or longer, and you can look back over your life and you can say, that's exactly the way it's been. That right now, even though you may not feel... As intensely as you did when you first became a believer. Just as you may not feel as intensely as you did when you first got married. The truth is right now you are both more aware of your own sinfulness. And you are more aware of God's grace. Are you not? And I would guarantee you that you're also more obedient. You may not feel it. You may not see it. But it's true. That you are more obedient in ways that you never could have conceived of when the Lord saved you. I mean, just think about the sins you were guilty of when the Lord saved you. You were you were convicted of of drinking and whoremongering and God knows what else you were doing. We won't get into it. But now God's exposing you things like ingratitude, pride, selfishness I've preached around today. What's happening? You're growing in obedience. You're growing in obedience. And what John wants us to do in a healthy, gospel-centered way is he wants us to see that growth. And he wants you to understand that growth is a sign of life. Growth is a sign of life. You put those squash seeds in the dirt in the early summer, and the sure sign of life is when you start to get some shoots pop out of the ground a little while later. John says, look for that growth in your life and realize that that growth is proof That you know Him and that you are one of His. And if nothing else, y'all, one of the greatest proofs, one of the greatest proofs that you know God is that your sin really bothers you. How do you know God forgives you of your sin? Well, here's some really, really inexpensive pastoral counsel. One of the ways you know God forgives you of your sin is when you start asking questions like, how do you know God forgives you of your sin? Because that means your sin bothers you and you want to move on from it. That's how you know. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Lord, you have forgiven more than we could ever confess, more than we could ever know. And we thank you. We thank you for the incredible cost that was paid for our forgiveness. But God, we want to live in confidence. Lord, I believe that Scripture teaches that it is your will for us to have joy in our forgiveness. I believe it is your will for us to know that we are saved and are forgiven. So, God, I pray that you would help us to know that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be regularly confessing our sins and help us to know from your word that you forgive us. Give us that confidence, we pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us until we meet again on Sunday. Keep us safe, keep us healthy, keep us close to one another and close to you and give us opportunities to serve as they arise. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.